Welcome to Farming for Health, where Farmer Lee Jones and I talk with leaders in food, farming, and health and wellness to spread knowledge and inspire a plant-forward future, starting now. Welcome to the Farming for Health podcast. I'm Dr. Amy Sapola, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michelle Perro. She's the author of What's Making Our Children Sick. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Amy. I am just delighted. Oh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. You're one of the greats, and I know you have so much wisdom to share, so I'm very grateful that you're here. But first, I'd just like to start off with hearing about what's your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? What got you into medicine and then integrative medicine and pediatrics? Yes, I'll I'll unpack that quickly because I've been at it for <laughs> decades. But I have to say, the overwhelming drive for me is childhood injustice. I am injustice for is what has been my mantra for for decades and not accepting that that's okay to treat kids in any other way other than superlatively. And I go for top shelf when it comes to our children. So it started when I when I did theater when I was 12 years old in children's hospitals to present. I started as a pediatric emergency physician, um, which was my passion, was acute care medicine, which I loved and I still love. And But the journey really kind of, I think, kind of went off kilter with my own son when he had health challenges. And he's given me permission to talk about him, by the way, so he could be listening. He's like, there's my mom sharing my stuff. But he was a little dude and he had some health challenges. And I had the serendipitous encounter with the homeopath. I tried homeopathy. I had never heard of homeopathy. I'm from New York. And I thought, what? And I couldn't even understand what remedies she was telling me because names of homeopathic remedies are in Latin. And I thought, what is this woman saying? But my mom's intuition, strong intestinal fortitude, told me to listen. I did. It worked. Did it twice. Happened again. Worked again. And and Amy, I must express the uh, anger I felt at the medical establishment, knowing, because I learned that homeopathy had been around for four or five centuries, perhaps for some actually um, a couple of millennia. But anyway, let's say at least to the time of Paracelsus Mm -hmm. um, in the 1600s, and Hahnemann brought it to light in the 1700s, and that there was this kind of medicine that had been suppressed, beginning with Rockefeller in 1910 with the Flexner Report. And I think many pharmacists, and I know you're an amazing pharmacist, are very familiar with the Flexner Report. Long story short, I trained in homeopathy, and then I I was doing homeopathy. I left emergency medicine. I was practicing, and a mom in our mom's group here in our local county said, Michelle, what do you think about the spray along the entire coast of Northern California against this light brown apple moth? I didn't know anything about it, I had to step up, even though I didn't want to. I was a busy mom, children, practice, soccer, dogs, full on. It was full on. And so I work with these gals, stop the spray. One county in California was sprayed and the light brown apple moth turned out to be a bust. It never turned into anything. So that whole spray, the entire coast of California with the toxic insecticide which would have been a disaster, wound up being nothing. Okay, that aside, one mom said to me, what do you think about GMOs? And I didn't know anything about GMOs. This was early 2000s. And I read Jeffrey Smith's book. She 
said, read this. Oh my God, what is wrong with you, woman? I read the book. It's called Seeds of Deception. It's still a classic written by Jeffrey Smith, my friend and colleague. And my whole world flipped because under I, as I began reading it, I was like, oh my God, it made sense to me. The rate of chronic disease, I was starting to see an uptick in children in around 2000, where I was starting to see uptick in gut, gut, gut disorder, asthma, 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 food allergy, food allergy, food allergy, and autism, autism, autism. I said, what the hell is going on? And putting those pieces together, I switch gears to environmental health, environmental toxicants, incorporating that into my practice. And I literally trained myself to become a naturopath, um, needed a bigger toolbox to help children. And I started treating complex chronic illness in kids, wrote that book, working on some other projects. So that's a very long answer, but it was just through a series of transitions and being open to the possibility and trying to get to the root cause of understanding that our kids are sick and we know why. No shoulder shrugging, no hands up. Oh my gosh, we don't know. Yes, we do know. So let's fix it. I love that. And that's one of my favorite things about you is how direct and to the point you are. And I love that you don't beat around the bush. Like we know what the problem is. And when it comes to food and childhood nutrition, let's dive into that. What are your thoughts around the importance of food, the importance of diet in children? So I would have to say unequivocally that food is number one in terms of children's health, all children from prenatal to adulthood, that we have done our children a tremendous disservice by um, bombarding them both in the supermarket, on the on TV, on, uh, you know, media with fast food, ultra processed, non-nutritive ingredients that are not real industrial food like products not real food and then expecting them to be healthy and perform well what a disconnect that is so food is number one not only do we need to move away from this ultra processed garbage that we call food in supermarkets that would be horrific but as you well know and our listeners likely know is that the nutritional content of the past four decades has plummeted so kids, even if they are eating salads with, and broccoli and other cruciferous veggies and what have you, the nutrient density is lower. So they need to eat more. So kids feel hungry all the time because their bodies are not being sustained with adequate, adequate macronutrients, micronutrients, and they're working with healthcare providers who have zero knowledge in this field. So even when parents know there's something wrong and they look for help, they're met with people who either disregard this science as being, you know, juju science or not, not real science, and that it's not really important to look at nutrition. I don't know what happened. Well, I do know what happened there. Actually, we know what happened. <laughs> so this is, um, it's paramount. If a child has any health challenge to look at diet number one, what are they eating? It, you are what you ate. Yeah, exactly. And I think the nutrient density piece is huge. And it's oftentimes such a marketing heavy field where, you know, there's so much fortified, highly processed food. And it's being fortified because due to the highly processed nature, those natural nutrients are stripped, right? And so you can feel like, oh, yeah, well, this has XYZ nutrients. But 
it doesn't have that complex like innate wisdom of a whole plant or a whole animal or whatever whatever the diet entails um, and again like you mentioned the soil health is extremely important um, and relates to our own gut health as well and how the plants are being grown and then what the animals are eating absolutely i love the soil health um, comparison because our gut health is absolutely synonymous with soil health and um, here is a shameless plug for our website regeneration health international but what we're trying to do and it's a recent website we've only been up not even a whole year yet is show this relationship between food as medicine moving away from farmer to farm aka amy sapola uh, <laughs> and regain the terrain back to understanding regenerative agriculture organic regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. So this relationship should be taught to every eater, every child, every every puppy. Everyone has to understand this relationship. Our gut health and the microbes that comprise a, a part of our gut health is absolutely synonymous with soil health. So and if our soil's not healthy, our gut's not healthy because the plants that we're eating will not be healthy. So this it's a very and so we want beautiful soil. We don't want to eat dirt. Let them eat dirt. No, let them eat soil. And so this is um, a very important concept about soil health. And when it comes to disease development in children, I know you mentioned autism and asthma, all the gut issues. Can you give some examples of maybe um, like recommendations you might make or a few top tips that mm -hmm. parents could consider for their children, especially if they're struggling with some of these conditions? Yeah, so the common things that happen right away in kids are things like um, eczema which is um a skin issue it's called an atopic disease it has an allergic basis 60 percent of babies now have eczema and your pediatrician might say oh it's benign put some steroid cream on it'll go away well it will it suppress it it does go away because it's it's an immune suppressant um so or parents may be dealing with allergies like it seems like one five-year-old told me dr Perro. I have allergies, everybody has allergies. It's so common that kids think it's normal and things and, and other, what we now consider even autoimmune issues like asthma, which affects anywhere from one in five to one in nine children, uh, super common, not benign, another atopic disease. So parents are struggling with these things. It's like, where does this stuff come from? Well, these atopic diseases come from the gut. They're an imbalance on the immune function of the gut. I think it's very important to understand that immune function, um, 70, 80, 90% of your immune function generates from the gut. And it's completely dependent on your microbiome, which is now considered an organ, that that collection of microbes made up of bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa, and archaea. And they're uh, responsible for immune function, production of vitamins, particularly B vitamins, folate, B12, first line of detoxification is are your bugs then your liver but your bugs first and etc as well as making neurochemicals those neurotransmitters which are the chemicals that run brain function so these are super important these microbes and so when they are out of balance and they and they are assisting in immune dysregulation and then you develop immune dysregulation as well as other things like leaky gut and we can get into that your immune cells called T helper cells become out of balance. And that imbalance between these T helper cells ratios, TH1 and TH2 for any immune nerds out there like me, um, out of balance and then can lead to subsequent issues with over responsiveness to an environmental ragweed, um, a food, dairy, 
um, a skin exposure, a soap, etc. And because of this imbalance. So you have to get to the root cause, which begins with the microbes. The number one killer of microbes amongst any everything is glyphosate, the main ingredient roundup. It's an antibiotic. The other consideration is mom's health is crucial before pregnancy, pre-pregnancy, post-pregnancy, hopefully breastfeeding, um, because mom is the steward of the microbial information passed on to the infant, either through a vaginal birth, and if it's a cesarean birth, through breastfeeding. And if those two things didn't happen, that baby's at a significant disadvantage. Just I love that you bring up mom's health. And I think, unfortunately, oftentimes you start thinking about your own health once you're already pregnant. But there's that opportunity if you have the chance prior to pregnancy, right, to start thinking about your health even when you become in those childbearing years um, and considering how to eat to support health, not only of yourself, but of a child. That that period, if you have the luxury of cleaning right. up mom, yeah. mom and dad prior is imperative because that also contributes to rates of toxicity for the baby. You want to do a cleanup anywhere, hopefully six months if you can swing it. And um, and you really want to clean up your diet, your internal milieu and the external milieu. So your your diet, your water, your sleep hygiene, your emotional uh, toxins. Oh, clear those up, folks, as well as the external you know, what products you're using on your personal care, your cleaning uh, products, taking shoes off at the door, dust. Dust is a major leader, uh, leading cause of uh, contaminants and pollution. It's just plain old house dust. Somebody should be dusting. Hopefully not the mom who's going to get pregnant. You know, dad, step up, start cleaning. Um, and all those things have to be addressed prior. And if they're not, it's not like all's lost. Mom should not detox during pregnancy, but eating well. It's not the time for mom to have potato chips and soda. I've heard a lot of women say, oh my God, I'm pregnant. I can eat whatever I want. I don't have to diet. And that means like chips and soda. <laughs> it's like, whoa, whoa. Let, backpedal. Uh, let, let's relook at that. No, no chips and soda, especially soda. But there's so many bad things. And so this idea is that microbiome that you will be passing on to that baby is key for the development of their immune function. You wanna give them the best possibility that you can. I love that you bring that up. And I think it's so important to consider not only what we're taking in, but what we're putting on our skin. And I like that you mentioned that. A note from our sponsor. The Chef's Garden is a family-owned regenerative farm that grows the most flavorful and nutritious vegetables, herbs, and microgreens for culinary professionals and home cooks. For over 30 years, the Chef's Garden has supplied some of the world's finest chefs and restaurants. Now, through Farmer Jones Farm, the same delicious ingredients are available to home cooks in the United States to use and enjoy, delivered directly to their homes. The Chef's Garden mission is to grow exceptional vegetables, care for each other and the land, and inspire a vegetable-forward future. For more information, visit chefs-garden.com. I like the EWG Skin Deep database. Do you have any other recommendations around like places to look if this is completely new to you or you're? Yes. Um, well, EWG, uh, EWG has one on obesogens and what causes obesity. They have one on water filters and water systems. How good is your tap water? So EWG has a lot of stuff. Um, I also like Made Safe, 
run by Amy Ziff, and um, and that organization does a lot of clearinghouse of products. Um, so those are two websites. And also now I think um, uh, Moms Across America and my friends at Honeycut, she has great info for moms um, on her website. And of course, our site, rhi.bio, we write a lot of articles to help folks. But I think in terms of guides, EWG is my go-to. And I just posted something today on social media from EWG and their guide. So I'm, I'm a fan of whether it's um, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. That's what I posted today. They have an updated version. Um, they have some really good info. But Made Safe, EWG, our site. Um, and then, of course, you know, the Chef's Garden. <laughs> I love what you're doing for people. Uh, so, yes. So there are some good okay. sources for folks to go to. Good. Thank you. So let's talk about your book. You wrote the book, What's Making Our Child Sick. And I know when we were talking before, you're working on a next book, more around what's making our children well. But what inspired you to write the first book, What's Making Our Children Sick? What inspired me was the overwhelm in the clinic. I was so overwhelmed with sick kids and I could only see eight, 10 kids a day. And cause the, the visits took so long. Um, and I thought, oh my God, eight to 10 a day, that's nothing. I need to reach more people. And so I was taking a hike with my new neighbor um, and Dr. Adams and we're walking along. What do you do? Oh, this is what I do. What do you do? And she told me she's an author. And I told her I had a book sitting on my desktop that I was struggling writing because there were so many hours I could not sit down in the chair to sit down and write. And she said, I'll help you write it. I said, you will? I was just like beside myself. So Dr. Adams and I tackle this book together and she helped me write this book about my patients. But I should say when we first started and Dr. Adams has come clean with this, she disbelieved everything I said. Everything we're sharing today, she was like, no way, there's impossible until she came to the clinic and she sat in on 20 of my patient visits. And by the 17th, she said, I think I got it. But she needed to be present and hearing all these parents' stories. And I say moms because 90% of my patients, it was only moms that ever came, even though I asked for both parents to come, whether it was a dad, a grandmother, three moms, two dads, whoever, whoever it was, I wanted the whole family dynamic there so that we didn't have infighting between parents that often happens and so that everybody was on board because you cannot change one member of a family's diet and everybody else stays the same that doesn't work susie's eating kale salad and johnny has pizza no way not going there so she came in wrote the book it was based on 10 of my patients that we chose uh our most difficult some of my, my my most difficult patients we wrote about who all did well i didn't write about a few that didn't do well not everybody does well, but for the most part, with the changes we made, I'd say about 90% of our patients got well. Wow, that's incredible. And when you look at getting children well, I know we talked about diet as a really important step. Environment. Are there any other areas that we're missing in this mm -hmm. conversation? Yes, the holistic toolbox. Mm -hmm. If a child already has a disorder, a dis-ease i.e. they already have neurocognitive challenges like ADHD or uh, autism, or they're already dealing with metabolic disorders like obesity, or they're having atopic disorders like allergies or asthma. It's It may often take more than just diet, although diet's the first place you start. Mm -hmm. Other things need to be done. So you're going to need a holistic toolbox and, and, and 
to do it on your own is really challenging. You have to work with a holistic practitioner and that doesn't need to be an integrated pediatrician. That's what I am. It can be a holistic nutritionist. It can be a chiropractor. It can be a practitioner of Chinese medicine and acupuncture. It could be a naturopathic doctor. There are many types of practitioners who do this work. And then it does take a broad toolbox because the kind of, when you have a child, let's say with autism, autistic spectrum disorder, it takes homeopathy, herbal support, nutraceuticals, nutritional medicine, hands-on manipulatives, other adjunctive therapies to get some of these kids better. It takes a lot and it takes a long time. Like I can say in some kids with autism, for example, it took up to three years to get them back to health. So this is a journey and it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, Amy, and it can be really challenging, but there are so many things that we can do to get to the root cause and then try to repair and allow the body's innate ability to heal itself, regain that capacity to begin the healing. It can be tough. Yeah, I'm so glad you bring that up because oftentimes I think we feel like things happen overnight, right? Like I got I got diabetes today. I was just diagnosed, you know, and but it's actually been a process to get there, right? And then it's a process on the other side of that to heal. And I like the word regenerate. Like we've been talking a lot. We're doing a course here, regenerate your health. And I think, you know, regenerating your health, your body is amazing and wants to come back into a healthy state. Oftentimes it's removing the things that are standing in the way of that. Um, but having those practitioners, like you said, like that multidisciplinary toolbox available um, to help support you kind of in every aspect through the journey can be really valuable. And what you said I must highlight, and that is you have to remove the toxic exposures. There are toxins and toxicants. Toxins are organic, toxicants are inorganic. If you don't reduce the toxic load, the child or the person or, or the family dog will unlikely get better because their systems have overloaded for clearing these toxins. You can clear some toxins through breathing, sweating, pooping, peeing. You have some detox pathways, but they get quickly overwhelmed. So remove reduce, lower that toxic load is step one and whatever that load may be. And it could be as simple, as simple as getting a water carbon filter, a HEPA air filter in your room, removing the carpets. You and I talked about that. Mm -hmm. Switching to organic food. You start to, to make these changes. And if you don't, health, real health, and we'll talk about what real health looks like, is going to be probably unlikely. So that there has to be a wake-up call and a realization that if you don't change how you are doing business, your health is not going to be recovered. It's yeah. unlikely. And that's, I, I like the saying, basically, there's no supplement or medication that's going to make up for a poor diet, right? And Or poor environment or XYZ baseline <laughs> health. An abusive relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Like there's there's no pill to fix any of these major fundamental issues. And I think it's really when you talk about addressing the root cause, it's looking at what is the foundation and how do we make a really solid foundation? And then often it's kind of pulling the strings of the web and figuring it out from there. But that I think is one of the most important places to start. And um, so... I think what you know what I'm trying to do with that second book is to mm -hmm. educate parents, and I'm focused on parents. That though, that's my audience. Parents, yeah. um, 
is to teach them how to do what I do. Okay. I think we have to create self-reliance again. I think we once knew it and then we lost it on reliance on systems, on government, education, healthcare systems, um, on uh, agencies that are supposed to regulate that don't regulate. I said, no. I said, rely on yourself. When you look at which countries did the best during COVID, the continent of Africa did the best. And you'll say, huh, well, why, why is that? Well, in my opinion, is that because many of the people, and I'm not African, but you know, I've studied a lot about Africa and their health challenges there, and they have so many challenges, but what they do have is self-reliance because they're not used to having governmental support or Medicare handouts and you know, uh, food stamps and a lot of the, the programs we have. So I think it's part of their self-reliance and they're used to treating issues and illness and also they have not been overcome with GMOs and pesticides. Only a few countries in the continent of Africa um, actively grow GMOs and pesticides. And there is a big push to get rid of and move back toward regenerative agriculture, which is what they did before. As a matter of fact, there's a society, this is a bit off topic, but call, called the African Center for Biodiversity. And they've taken on Monsanto Bayer right now to try and get um, and prohibit the growth of GM maize corn um, in Africa. So this idea, so but getting back to point is teaching people how to take care of their own health. And that and then the pantry is your medicine chest that where it begins. So people have to relearn that toolbox. It's not it's not in the pill. It's you know, it's in, in your it's in your windowsill. Well, I actually like that. Oh, I like that too. You gotta write that down. <laughs> Brilliant emerges from podcast with Amy Kapala. What can I say? It, that could be a T-shirt, really. Um, let's let's co-produce it. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> um, but I love the idea of your book now focusing on the solution, right? And so I think it's um, as you had talked about looking at like what what can we do? How do we become empowered to make decisions? that help us take care of ourselves because we can't necessarily depend on others to do that. And it's empowering. When mm -hmm. you yourself have instituted a change in your family or yourself and you have a positive result, oh my gosh, it's it's a, 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 a you know, bells ringing moment, Broadway, you know, you know lights and, and dancing because it's like, wow, I can do this. Yes, you can. And sometimes I do feel like a cheerleader. I sound like a cheerleader, but sometimes that's what it takes. A coach or cheerleading saying, you did that. I didn't do that. I didn't go in your house. You did that. You made that change. And sometimes just as simple as, and we were chatting before the podcast about elimination diets. You know, if kids have sensitivities to certain foods and you remove them and you're gone organic and they feel better, oh, that was a simple but powerful change. And you didn't really need me to do that. You did that. So empowering parents to say, wow, um, there are certain foods that are very um, allergic producing. Most common ones are the foods kids eat, like gluten and dairy. I removed them. I switched organic and my and my son got better. Yeah. Hey, right mm -hmm. on. And then we can take it from there. But that's what it takes. And when, when people see it themselves, that connection between their food and their health, that's what it takes. Because when you see it, You've lived it, you've walked that walk, it's personal. And so, and experiences matter. 
when, um, for example, when a child plants that carrot, grows the carrot, and then they themselves eat the carrot, they'll have more of a likelihood to eat the carrot because they grew it. It's personal. The experience is personal. So I love this idea of you creating personal experiences in your own kitchen, experiencing the benefit of health, and then being inspired to continue to grow. It's, it's you know, sprouting your own internal plants. Yeah. Yeah. So when you think of what's making our children healthy, can you give us like one or two like kind of starting points for that? Yes, absolutely. So here's something that I like, and uh, this may be an unknown to some folks. So um, let's say you have a kid who's really struggling. Maybe they're, they're just not thriving. They're not growing well. Many kids are not growing well. So here's something simple you can do. Um, broken down amino acids, and amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Um, some simple ones like glycine, which is um, an amino acid, a building block that your body can make sometimes. Sometimes it can't, but sometimes it usually can. And giving your child glycine in the terms of um, organic bone broth soup. And I say organic because if you use um, animals, if you do eat animals that are humanely treated, free range, grass fed, grass finished, um, that heavy metals are stored in bone and fat. So that's where your heavy metals go to that you eat. They're stored in your, your fat, your bone marrow, your brain, um, and in your bone. So if you eat an animal that has been fed poorly, you'll be getting their heavy metals. So you must eat a well-fed, organic, free-range, hopefully animal, chicken, turkey, could be pork or beef, whatever. And giving your child that bone broth can be restorative. If that can't happen for whatever reason, you can use collagen. Collagen um, often comes from cow. Again, the cow has to be humanely raised. And I like the idea of using it because it's using the entire cow and not just eating the steak, but you've used the entire animal that we, we've blessed. Um, and so I often clean co collagen and that can really restore a child's health. It has no taste. Many kids who have poor health are picky eaters trying to run around a house that with a child with a spoon of something is really challenging, especially kids with neurocognitive challenges, autistic kids are very picky. So it's tasteless and you can put it in a smoothie. That would be tip two. So tip one, glycine or collagen or bone broth, get it in everything, put in your kid's diet and smoothie is your friend. Kids like smoothies. And when kids have tummy troubles, which is many children now, sometimes cold may be better than hot they'll like cold. So a cold smoothie, and if you use coconut milk, that has something called medium chain triglycerides in it. And those particular fats in coconut milk are good for the brain function for your child. And, and, and coconut milk is a little bit sweet without adding more sweetener. So you can use coconut milk. Pineapple is awesome. And pineapple has bromelain. Bromelain is an enzyme. So it helps break down stuff that's not good. It can even break down spike protein. You could give that little bit of pineapple. And then, then you could sneak greens into there. And if your kid has a phobia eating the color green, I had a few patients like that, they wouldn't eat anything green. They knew greens were vegetables. Can you imagine? I use a colored cup like the one you're drinking from, Amy. Don't let them see the color. <laughs> right, that's a good idea. And some kid, I, I've had patients like this, they see green and like, no, I yes. So this is where you can sneak in, put in the collagen powder or your glycine in the smoothie and your greens. I always start with the cruciferous greens because they have sulfur in them and super healthy for a phase two liver detox. 
and you can put your probiotic powder in there. And lo and behold, you've got an amazingly powerful drink. And eventually you could add more and more greens in there because you can't, especially like a toddler, they can't eat as many greens as you can put into a smoothie. Chances are they can't eat three stalks of celery, but you can get three stalks of celery in a smoothie. Now, if your child needs something sweet, here's my other tip. I use dates, organic pitted dates. If they're, and I, I like dates, a nutritive food. You don't want to eat tons of dates because it's concentrated sugar, but some dates can really sweeten a drink. If a kid, kids do like sugar, I'm not, I'm not trying to pr promote sugary drinks, believe me, but sometimes just to get started, you may need to add some dates and that tastes really good. And then don't forget your friend cocoa powder, cacao powder, and it doesn't have sweetener in it, the organic powder, but it's filled, it has a chocolatey flavor. It's filled with antioxidants. So you can put a little bit of that in there, a little bit of dates, coconut milk and a banana. You got yourself a great, a great drink there. So these are the kind of ideas and they don't take a lot, you, but you do need either a bullet, a Vitamix. I bought mine on eBay used, got my Vitamix. Um, you can use the, I think the bullet, very affordable. Vitamixes tend to be a bit more expensive, but you do need a blender of some kind. To, and I don't like juicers. I don't want to take the fiber out. So blend the whole thing. Let them drink the whole darn thing. Don't juice it. Juicing, yeah, if you're on a special anti-cancer diet, you're juicing. Okay, that's a whole different subject, Amy. But for the kids, give them the fiber. Your microbes like that fiber. So give them that fiber. I couldn't agree more. I think having all of the nutrients in there with the fiber is really, really important. And for my kids, we kind of make it a game when I make green smoothies, we call them like monster smoothies and it's fun and they're, they're good with it. So, you know, I think it's kind of, if you, if you have the luxury of starting young and you make it kind of a game, they're pretty adaptable. So. You said something really important and I, I've actually written about this is that make it fun. Mm -hmm. Make it a game, tell story, make songs, you know, P is for peas, you know, sing a song about it. And because children's world is through games and storytelling and making it enjoyable, not, not you better sit down and eat your spinach, young man. That is not enjoyable for anyone. Right. So you have to incorporate kids into the planning. Let them get in there with you making whatever you're making. Oh, Be part yes. of it. Yes. So let's talk about gardening. So I know that you love gardening. I love gardening. When it comes to children and gardening, let's talk about why that's important. So there is a program here in my county called Conscious Kitchen, and I'll throw a shout out to them. And it was started with a group of amazing women and Alice Waters, who's a very famous chef and has Chez Panisse here locally. Um, Michelin star restaurant. I don't usually eat there, Amy. I think I've eaten there <laughs> once on when my husband proposed to me. I think it was the last time. <laughs> anyway, and they started trying to bring these organic foods to children's schools. And the program was so successful. And but not enough funds. So it's kind of stalling right now. But it gives you the idea of why so successful. Number one, kids are part of the process. Mm -hmm. Number two, they're outdoors in sunshine. Number three is they get their hands dirty. And it's really important to get their kids in healthy soil because you acquire part of that microbiome from soil. And we know from uh, the research and literature that farm children are organic farm children are healthier than non-farm children. 
not some of these toxic farms that we have in all over. And so that relationship. And also when they were eating the food that they were growing and producing it, um, after just one month in this one school, rates of attendance approved and trips to the principal's office for naughty behavior went down. And UCSF was studying this and found this positive correlation between having that garden, children growing, hands dirty, soil, microbial sharing and preparing was a win-win for both students and teachers because teachers got to get outside, not to mention teaching about how you grow your own food. Because it's a little bit more than you just stick a seed in some, in some soil. There's a few things you need to know. And also they learn to be nurturers. They care for the plants, whether they need to give nutrients or water, or the plants getting too much heat, not enough heat. The plant is too cold. So there's relationship that happens with nature and nurturance. And I think our children need to be taught to nurture. It's not inherent in many children, this act of sharing and caring, and we have to teach it. So there are so many benefits from this, this uh, teaching this relationship. So I think every single school globally should be instilling these school gardens. And you say, well, what about in Cleveland? What about in you know New York City, Oakland? What about it? You can grow indoors. You can create greenhouses. I was at your farm and I was amazed by those microgreens. Oh my God, I was talking about those microgreens when I visited your farm, um, at Farmer Jones Farm and um, beautiful. And so you can grow indoors. You can do um, hydroponics. You know, it's not my favorite mm -hmm. system. I prefer soil growing, but you can be creative if you have to. And so you can you can grow in a window ledge. You can grow the microgreens or herbs. Herbs can even be healthier than some vegetables. So every classroom can have an herb garden or microgreens garden right in their windowsill in New York City. So there's no excuse not to grow. So just like art and music should be part of the curriculum, PE and gardening. And so every child learns to be their own farmer and they can take care of themselves. That's that's the what we should all be doing. I love that vision for the future and I am so on board with that. I I love the show Growing Your Greener World. If you've never seen it, it's on PBS and they show a couple great um, examples of people doing just that. But I think when you start to look around the country, there are pockets of schools really getting in involved in kind of like the farm to school model but it can really change not only a child's relationship with the earth and the environment but themselves the food they eat their relationship with food um, and I think you talked about um, like emotional toxins and I think for a lot of us with a we develop a strained relationship around food, whether that's passed on through how our families deal with food or whatever, but um, having that relationship and being able to connect with the earth and how vegetables are grown and feel the pride of pulling out a carrot or whatever, um, I think is just so valuable. And like you mentioned, really should be taught in every single school. I'm working with our local school right now. They put a garden right in the courtyard um, and they have a garden box, just a small garden box for each and every classroom. They have 28 classrooms at the school. So 28 little garden boxes um, 
And this year we're planning to do salad in them because it's ready in the spring before they go off for summer break. And then we're going to plant a fall planting. We're going to do some radishes. We're going to plant some herbs. They can make a simple little salad and try it when they, you know, in the spring and in the fall. And then a lot of pollinator plants. Um, So they can really get a number of lessons through one single garden. You know, it's, it's, it's so much we can do. And the uh, the downside is so often it takes volunteer parents to get in there and create these programs because the schools don't have funding for this. So what happens, you have farming and justice. So schools like my kids school where they went, I was in there. So we can be, we were essentially employees of the school district, the amount of time we did projects. So in schools where both parents are working or one parent household or whatever the situation may be, those schools can't do it. So then we have an injustice there where kids of need who have the biggest need don't have access. So we have to somehow create access across the board. The school that received the garden program that I was referring to in in our county is a low-income school. Mm -hmm. And that's where they started. And I love that, that, that we, we, they, they did that and i and i was involved with that program peripherally but i just did everything i could support supporting these kids um so but we need to get everybody on board on this concept mm-hmm. of doing just that it it takes the what happened in one school district in our area the reason why they didn't go forward was the labor union for kitchens was worried about losing their jobs and they didn't want to create kitchens in the schools and so it would, and their own children went to those local schools. So biting the hand that feeds you, literally. So it's like we need to do community education. This is not a job loss; it's a job gain. We can do retraining on education. Every school should have a kitchen, not a microwave, but a kitchen, right. like they do in France. Yes. Every school cooks. Those kids sit down to like a six-course meal with a, a cheese course at the end. And American kids are eating a couple nasty little chicken McNuggets and uh, apple juice with ketchup. I mean, it's 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 egregious. It is. And one of the things I hear often as a reason um, why food grown at the school is not utilized in the kitchen is like food safety, which I think is a poor excuse as well. And there are certainly ways to address that to make food that's grown on site safe. <laughs> use in the cafeteria (laughs) yesterday my daughter was here we were out in our garden and and she said mom why aren't you picking the chickweed um i said chickweed (laughs) chickweed is a weed it grows everywhere and it's super healthy i said oh let's go and so she just washed it she i don't even think she washed it and threw it in our salad and i was saying oh dear (laughs) i started thinking oh no she didn't wash it i kind of ate it anyway but but normally what i would do is take a vinegar water spray and and spray down so you don't want to chew on some parasites if you don't have to just spray it down and you can rinse it but there are definite techniques you can use even one or two drops of bleach in water and soak the veggies like you do in every developing country and and then prepare it that way but there are very easy things you can do and actually they're even healthier things than bleach you can use like neem oil and other antibacterials to wash veggies so it's not impossible to do this you know um, food prep places do it all the time in supermarkets and grocers and whole foods and wherever you are so we can do this in schools it's this is this is tackable that we can do this oh absolutely and i 
I, my example was I prior to this, I did it in a hospital. If I can do it in a hospital, we can do it in a school, right? And so I think it's just getting rid of those barriers and realizing like this is the way food has been grown for a very long time and you know nothing although there's the perception of sterility when something comes from a package that is unnecessary (laughs) well i showed some pictures on a a resource social media uh, post of people that are supposed to be packing sterilely and i and someone did a sneak video of a bunch of workers at a table just shoving things in packages and putting a a tape on it so this idea of sterility hmm, may not be as accurate as you think just saying but you know in my own i don't i'm not on a farm i just have a home garden but just yesterday i was able to get some broccoli pick some cleavers cleavers are grow all over the place and they're really good for cleaning your lymph system the chickweed as you know and i had wild mustard greens growing everywhere yeah. i must have planted them someplace and they like <laughs> I was like, oh, freeloaders. And put <laughs> it's like, oh, wow. Um, so it's so easy to do. And then I had a bag of potatoes that I kind of forgot about and they took off for life of their own and then just stuck them in the ground. So it's not, not that difficult. And there's so much abundance around us. You just have to know what you're doing and have somebody show you if you don't know. And there are apps on your phone now, which will identify pretty accurately for the most part. It's called Seek is the one I use of what something is when I don't know it. I, yeah. I double check the chickweed. I says, chickweed. <laughs> what? <laughs> My daughter went, mom, it's chickweed. <laughs> and so um, there's just so many ways and it really is satisfying. And when, and tastes so much better when you grow it yourself, there's nothing like a homegrown tomato or whatever you're growing. They do taste better. Yeah. Because remember the stores, uh, stores, farms often grow so they don't, they can survive transit. So they may not taste best. They may have a thick skin, so they don't get mushy and they're 3000 miles across the US. So what you can do at home is probably taste better as well as nutritionally more valuable. Exactly. Yeah, that's that shipping piece is tough when it comes from unripened, picked at not right, like not peak ripeness. There's definitely a flavor difference. And so I think also, you lose nutrients as you ship. So, absolutely. Yep. Um, so, when we look at plant-forward dishes, one of the questions I always love to ask people on this show is, what are you cooking right now? Like, what's one dish at home that you're cooking that's pretty plant-forward that you're excited about? So, I'm all about plant-forward eating right now. I, myself, I, I do eat meat. Um, however, I've been trying to create more plant-forward dishes in my own family. So, yesterday, hanging out with my daughter, I decided to make a lentils, a lentil dish. And what I made was I browned some, um, I had some roasted garlic, I browned it with a little bit of onion. And then I added carrots and I added some uh, lentils with filtered water. I had some chicken uh, bouillon, it's called better bouillon, organic better bouillon. That's my secret sauce, I put, put that everything. And then I added some really rich um, spices. Cumin is one of my go-to. A little bit of turmeric, which I kind of add and everything, and then you know some sea salt for minerals, some pepper, bay leaf off our bay tree right outside, and then I added at the end of cooking um, a bunch of ground up uh, Italian broadleaf parsley um, to give it that herbal thing, and served it over a bit of rice. So just to give you an idea, and it oh, I also threw some couscous in there while I was cooking it to um, no not couscous quinoa. I don't, um, not, not couscous, I don't do gluten. 
by quinoa to give it a bit more hardiness to make it thick. And it was absolutely delicious. And my daughter sucked that down. So using more um, legumes um, for sure in my cooking and then diversifying. So if I do make potatoes, I'll make parsnips and potatoes. So I diversify what I might, and I like to roast them is what I do. But then I made a salad. So yesterday's salad was, there was some lettuce. I chopped an entire broccoli, super fine, including the stem in there, a little bit of cabbage, red onion, and just about in everything. And we put those mustard greens in there, chopped really fine. And I made a cashew uh, dressing. Yep. And it was delicious. And so because raw food has the most nutrient dense food. So cooked food is great when you're stressed out. So your gut doesn't have to work as hard to process, but raw food is just packed with nutrients in your salad and your salad. Okay. Iceberg lettuce, it's a start, but then you want to be able to add, definitely focus on the cabbage, uh, the broccoli and just chop it really fine. I like to cook garlic, but if you can tolerate a little bit of raw garlic in there, so much better for you. But remember, let that garlic rest for about 10 minutes after you smash it to get it to be activated. And just don't, and then you can chop it in. A little raw garlic, super good for your health. And then um, I'm getting in more to the cashew milk uh, for dressing. And so um, I soak the cashews. I buy raw organic cashews and I soak them overnight. And then I use that to make my dressing. It comes creamy. And if you want to add to your salad some nutritional yeast, it'll make it taste cheesy if you if you don't want to add cheese or dairy, which I did not do. And then don't forget your friend lemon. And it's not just the lemon juice, it's the lemon zest. All you need is a grater and just grate a little bit of the skin, just filled with um, antioxidants in there for you. Um, and a little bit of the skin there tastes so good and it really brightens up your salad and you put the lemon juice and a little bit of the lemon zest. I do, I put lemon zest in just about everything um, because it tastes so good and it's so healthy for you. And you use the whole lemon, not just the juice. That so sounds the, so good. Just some tips. And that was yesterday. And it only, it took me about two hours to cook everything. And I made a whole bunch of meals in two hours and I have leftovers for today and tomorrow. That's yeah. Food prep is the best. <laughs> And I like that you talk about using the stem too. And that's one of the things we're really passionate about is how can you use like all parts of the plant? And broccoli stem is actually pretty undervalued. I think it's still really delicious, very high in fiber, high in nutrients. Like it's great. Even the leaves on broccoli are edible, right? Like the little leaves and they're delicious. And so it's really just finding ways to utilize all parts of the plant, reduce waste and add in those nutrients chop it fine you know you just need to yeah. chop it there are some herbs where the stems don't taste as good i think basil may be one of them but i'll even eat the stems of basil um i eat them all and i just chop it really fine is what i do especially what you want to really incorporate in your diet this morning i had it in my egg with cilantro cilantro mm. is my friend and the cilantro stems are just super healthy and make it really fine and that herb is great for it's a mild heavy metal binder It'll help take out some of that stuff that you're eating, those heavy metals um, that you're exposed to. Might be in your food, contaminated in your air. Again, they, you breathe them in, you breathe in heavy metals. If they're in your gut, helps it clear it out. Is cilantro and um, chlorella. 
Um, so those are some things you can incorporate into your diet that are just really good to maintain and do a daily detox because we really need to daily detox. So that cilantro will do it, drinking lots of filtered water and add a squeeze of lemon in your water, which will alkalinize it and a little bit healthier for you. I love that. And even even my kids like lemon water. We we do that all the time. And it's, I mean, I think it's fun for them to just squeeze it. So <laughs> um. squeeze your lemons. Um, I have a, I have a beautiful lemon tree out in my garden that she gives me lemons almost all year. I just feel oh, so nice. I know I haven't bought a lemon in years. Um, oh, that's wonderful. We don't quite have that in Ohio, but <laughs> I do have a dwarf lemon tree inside. <laughs> it's not quite as productive. In California, you know, cold for us, it, it'll hit 50 today. That's a cold day. Oh my gosh. I know, I know. That's awesome. (laughs) A message from our sponsor. Farmer Jones Farm provides nutritious, regeneratively grown vegetables to home cooks nationwide. We seek to provide our community with vegetables grown in a way that's healthy for you and good for the planet. To learn more about Farmer Jones Farm, visit FarmerJonesFarm.com. Our podcast is called Farming for Health. When I say farming for health, what does that bring up for you? Farming for health means to me to understand that our health is inextricably related to what we grow and that we eat for health. Yes, we eat for taste, but food is just data. It's data for our bodies. It's information for our bodies to help it run. And yes, of course you want it to taste good, absolutely. But the real reason why we're eating is to run this biologic system. That's what it's all about. So if we could potentially create these foods that are that taste wonderful, but are also super healthy, then it's a win-win. And the way we do that is what we put into the earth. The earth is bountiful. So love mother nature, appreciate mother nature, the bounty she gives us, but nurture her, take care of her. And you don't abuse mom, you just take care of mom. And when we do that, mom provides back. So this, again, it's all about this nurturance. And what we're doing is we don't extract from mother nature, she provides, we give back. Like, so what does that mean? So I have chickens, and what I do is after I use their eggshells to feed back to my chickens for calcium, but at, when I boil them and take that water, I give it to my oak trees and I put eggshells around my oak trees because I'm giving back to them. And I know they they need, eggshells are super self healthy for you. And then I give egg, leftover eggshells and I put them like maybe like the Miwok indigenous people of California did. They had these shell mounds and I believe those shells are all, they used oyster shells but chills are really good for mom, mother nature. So those are some of the simple ways I do it. So I've been for the past year, we've had a lot of oak death in California. So I've been giving, I've been doing an experiment, giving with this one tree, bunches of calcium and other from eggshells. And this tree is perking up. And I, and I do other nutrients for my trees. I do do nutrients. I, you didn't hear me say pesticides, just nutrients. And they are holding steady from something called sudden oak death, which is caused by a parasite uh, from a, I think it's a contamination from a beetle from the bay trees. But anyway, um, so that's this idea. It's about relationship, relationship with nature. And that's, it's very indigenous in the way we think about it, but we do learn from our indigenous uh, people who were here forever, 
and and learn from the way they nature took care of the land. I think they did a great job. And so we should ask our indigenous friends and neighbors, how did you take care of Mother Earth? Because they had, I think, the most exquisite and beautiful relationship. So understanding that um, and passing it on. No Mother Earth, we're gone. <laughs> Yes, and I think that's a perfect lead-in. You're a co-founder of Regeneration International. Can you speak to a little bit more about that organization? I know you mentioned it briefly before, but a little bit more about the organization um, and how you got involved with that. So um, about a year ago, uh, what happened was I was um, a little bit uh, disconcerted about what was happening and a certain narratives being promoted um, around COVID and a lack of discussion around how to ways to stay healthy and boost immune function and upping our sunshine and vitamin D and vitamin C, et cetera. I was very disconcerted about that. So I approached friends of mine. Uh, one of them was Regeneration International run by Andre Liu, who's an organic farmer, Regen farmer and author and uh, Organic Consumers Association, Ronnie Cummings and others. And we formed a sister organization to Regeneration International which is a farming organization called Regeneration Health International, which just look, looks at food as medicine. And to try and grow our, net, our network our network between Organic Consumers Association, all the other organic groups out there, Regeneration International and us, looking at the transition on what holistic health really looks like and how we can educate people back to what that looks like, not through a feed online all the time, but really getting people reinvolved into knowledge that's been lost. And it's not forever lost, it's out there and people are doing it, but we have to network it and make it common knowledge. It shouldn't be just a few of us who hold this knowledge, everyone needs to hold this knowledge. So that's what we've been focused on. And you know, in 2014, we started GMO Science and that was specifically looking at GMOs and the effect on health, GMOs and their associated pesticides, because you don't need a GMO alone, um, with a lens on health. And that was really a scientific website. And now we've been just involved in looking at genetic engineering and what the effects of genetic engineering are, CRISPR, Impossible Burger, genetically engineered foods. Everyone can modify an organism in their garage these days. So that's what that organization does. But so it's really understanding that technology, better eating through technology, is not the way to go. These um, food-like products, like the Apostle Burger, that's, that's the bad burger, don't eat it. Uh, crickets on your menu, I don't think so. We can't really break down crickets. Uh, chitin doesn't work well for us. Um, birds can eat crickets, um, not so good for humans, just saying. So getting us to eat industrial food-like products and, and crickets and Impossible Burgers, which is a, a synthetic um, GMO soy-like hemoglobin made from soy so that it tastes like a, a burger, a bloody burger. This is not how we're supposed to eat. So IT inventions of what sexy food looks like doesn't work. So let's move off these um, virtual food, 3D printed meat, fabricated foods back to real whole foods. So there is no substitute for real whole foods. It's not going to happen through the internet. That's what I tell folks. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I heard Paul Hawken talk yesterday. I think I was listening to something from him, and he said he was talking about Impossible Burger, and that's where he draws the line because he said the creator um, basically insisted on GMO um, ingredients and was not okay with non-GMO soy, I think it was, to make the burger. Um, and he said at that point, like, that doesn't that doesn't make sense if your in, intended impact is 
to reduce the burden of growing animals, right? Um, so, yeah, it was a very interesting uh, conversation. You know, this it's kind of manipulative because so many people want to eat healthier. So they think by eating something like the Impossible Burger, it's like, here yeah, we're promoting plant-forward meals, right? Plant-forward. Yes. So they're saying, oh, you could eat what tastes like real burger. But remember that that impossible burger, which is a genetically modified soy and which they've taken that gene and put into a yeast to grow this protein that tastes like beef blood. The burger bleeds when you cut it. It creates 44 novel proteins that our body's never seen before. And they're highly allergenic. They produce allergies. And when people first started reporting about these allergies online, after eating the Impossible Burger, they kind of disappeared off Twitter, off Facebook, off Insta, that they disappeared. However, there is an organization, a GMO uh, um, activist organization out there that collected data on eaters of the Impossible Burger. And the range of side effects of health was astounding. And we're hoping to get a hold of that data and publish it. So that's in the works. Understand that that stuff is not good for you. The FDA did not approve of that burger. Initially, Impossible Foods makes the burger. They denied their um, approval initially. They went back at them and they said, you have a conditional um, kind of provision, meaning if you can prove that your burger is safe, then you can produce it. So they did one study with 20 rats over 28 days, 10 males, 10 females. They showed significant reproductive error, um, uh, issues and other health effects in the rats. And some guy in Nebraska said that those findings were clinically insignificant. That's the same thing Monsanto did when they introduced the GMO burger. They have findings in the rats, as if, you know, we're a bunch of rats. Well, some of us are, but um, okay. And then they say, no, these are clinically insignificant. So it's how we're interpreting the data. So I would say all those, and Beyond Meats is not the Impossible Burger. Beyond Meats, people confuse those two. Beyond Meat is just a pea protein, and pea proteins are really high in pesticides because they use pesticides to dry out crops. So if, you, if you're going to eat peas, peas are good, legumes have to be organic. Otherwise, they're filled with Roundup glyphosate-based herbicides. So people need to understand what they're eating. You need a PhD um, to understand food chemistry. Unless you just go to the farmer's market, you'll be fine. You don't need a PhD. Yes, that's, I think it's really important to think about, like, when we're talking about regeneration and regenerating the earth, glycosate plays no role in that, right? And so that organic piece is essential when you're thinking about agriculture and how do you give back to the soil and how do you, like, coexist in a way that it's not just taking, um, as you had talked about. So... I just wanted to finish up with, do you have any last thoughts that you wanted to leave our audience with today? Yes. So I think that I, I don't want to be pessimistic because I am an eternal optimist as a human. And we have a lot of battles out there, Amy. And it may seem overwhelming, especially to families who have kids and work and so many responsibilities. It just may seem overwhelming and just so easy to get a drive through or just get something. Yes. It's, it's, there's absolutely true that it's more convenient to get takeout. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that's more convenient. But I would say that folks, it takes some work and there's a cost of convenience. And I say, if you can possibly look at what you're doing in your day, that's taking up most of your time. Many of us are working or commuting. However, 
let me just say, I was on a recent commuter train and, um, and everybody was on their devices, their phones. And I said, gosh, everybody's working. So I'm looking around and I see everyone just scrolling. You know, you could see, tell when people are scrolling, you see a little finger moving. And I swear to goodness, I think everybody's on social media. And so then I had a look. I wanted to know if everybody's on social media. I'm not snooping your social media, but I did a walk through this one car, train car, and I saw more Insta and Facebook and everything else out there. And I thought, huh. So if you as an eater, as a human, as a dad, whatever, can look at what is taking up your time, where's it going? If you have an extra half hour, an hour a day you're spending on social media, maybe you want to take that hour and put it in the kitchen. So we have to reassess ourselves, do some real hardcore looking at where we are spending our time, what's taking up our energy. Are you in front of the boob tube at night when you just want to veg out? That may be a time where perhaps both parents can get in the kitchen and prep some stuff for the week and talk and, you know, chat, you know, and listen to some music or whatever you do and kind of shift the idea of what is relaxing. I'm asking also our eaters, our people, our parents, whomever, is media has bias and media is owned by pharma. Be clear. So you're going to be getting certain messaging. If you want to spend a Sunday watching football, count how many pharma ads there are, let's say on a sports game. And are we all born with the lack of, you know, diabetic drugs, people? I, I don't think so. So moving away from traditional media, getting off the boot tube, whatever, wherever that media is taking up your time and those subliminal messages and the pharma control narrative and get into doing other things with your family, with your kids or with whomever, yourself, getting in nature might be a, another way for analyzing our use of our time. So that's that's my that's my call out. That's my ask. Maybe that's not advice, but it is my ask. I think that's perfect, and I couldn't agree more. Where can our listeners go to find you online? I know that people are going to want to connect with you. Thank you for that, because you know I forget to promote. I have a website. I forget to promote it because I put stuff up <laughs> all the time, but I just forgot. It's drmichellepero.com, and I have a parent page. And on my parent page. I have a bunch of videos on food. I have tons of recordings, literature. I have a, a new pediatric environmental health questionnaire that I just wrote um, that will be, be, I'm doing a survey coming up in the next couple of weeks from RHI. I'm doing a survey for parents on environmental health questionnaire for them and finding about their kids. I'm, gonna, I'm doing a survey and I will be promoting that uh, information perhaps on our next podcast together. So please go to my website and, and, and all that information there, free, easily accessible, and hopefully the book, Making Our Children Well, will be out there at the end of this year. If I can keep my tushy in a chair, it'll be, it'll be done. Awesome. Well, I am so thankful that you came on today. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you, Amy. And I love what you're doing. I love the chef's garden. You are right on the money, and it's my absolute pleasure to chat with you this morning. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Farming for Health. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Connect with Farmer Lee Jones and I on Instagram and Facebook.